Dear God, we come before you and we recognize that you are the one who has made this day and you're the one who's made it a gift to us. And Lord, as you've given us this day and this conference and our lives and our education and the very being that we are, we humbly hand that back over to you. And we want to say, here, here we are, God. Here I am. How do you want to use me? I'll go, and I'll do what you want me to do. During this time, Lord, I just pray that you'll give me the words to say, and I pray that you'll give us all ears to hear and hearts to be open to whatever lessons you have for us. I pray that you would lead each one of us, knowing that you have plans for each one of us. You know the plans that you have for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us, plans for hope and a future. And I count on that promise, God. And even though I don't know what tomorrow or next month or next year may be exactly, I just trust that my life is in your hands and you've got good plans for me. So I pray that you'll make that abundantly clear um, step by step in your timing. And uh, I look forward with anticipation and excitement to what you have uh, for me. I know that you're alive and active in the world, God, and it's just our honor and privilege to get to join with you and um, walk along with you and see the work and to be involved in what you're doing. So as we talk about refugees and OVCs, uh, people that you care very deeply about, uh, just teach us. Teach us what you would have us to do. And I ask for your blessing during this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, um, I'm excited to be here, and um, that prayer turned out to be more of a sermon than I expected. Um, I just kind of wanted to get God's help, um, and thank you for coming to this session. I hope that it's a benefit to you, and uh, as you kind of explore and take steps into what God has for you to do in your future and your skills. Um, this session is about refugee health and Orphan and Vulnerable Children. The OVC is an acronym that stands for Orphan and Vulnerable Children, and we'll do a little bit more about what that means in a few minutes. My name is Dr. Susie Snyder, and I wear a lot of hats. I'm a mom to two girls, uh, ages uh, 21 and 18 now. Um, I've been a full-time missionary for 16 years in Kenya with Christian Missionary Fellowship, CMF. Uh, I'm a doctor. Um, and I've been a bush doctor, I've been a pediatrician at an Air Force base, I've been an attending physician at Vanderbilt, and I still carry um, assistant clinical professorship there of internal medicine and pediatrics. I've been able to keep up two board certifications over the last 20 years. Um, I've given birth at a rural hospital in Africa. A lot of interesting experiences, some I wouldn't necessarily recommend. But uh, through all of it, God has been present and has led me through the way, and I've learned a lot of lessons and would love to share some with you, some things that I feel like I've done right and some things I've did wrong, and I learned through mistakes. Um, so you can learn from me and not make the same ones. Um, anyway, I uh, lived and worked in Kenya for 14 years, and I also had the chance to take care of refugees and internally displaced people, IDPs, and OVCs in Kenya, but also in Central Asia and Sri Lanka and some other countries. So as I share my uh, thoughts today, it's going to come largely from my experience um, as I share my perspective on refugee and OVC health. Our objectives for this session, um, we're going to go through some of the acute care issues 
that refugees and OVCs face, but also thinking about the chronic health problems they may face and the aftermath, realizing that most of the refugee problems and, and issues with OVCs are not just medical issues, but they also have social, economic, emotional, mental, spiritual components. And so solutions for them really have to be holistic to address all those different aspects of the problem. And we're also going to kind of look at the stages of development from relief to development, how they differ, uh, what the problems are and how they can be faced. And lastly, consider how can the church be a present help to the homeless. Just a little bit of background about myself. My husband Dave and our girls, Rebecca and Lauren, served in Kenya, East Africa, over a 16-year span, working among the uh, Maasai tribe group uh, in southwestern Kenya. This is a very traditional people group. Uh, they live a very traditional lifestyle and have a lot of health and social needs. Um, we were on a team that was primarily involved in church planting and Christian leadership development. I was the only physician on our team, and as such, our family focused primarily on the health ministries, and that included oversight of nine clinics in Bush remote village locations. After 10 years of serving in Kenya, I was given opportunities to serve in some other countries on some um, providing medical care on a short-term basis. Um, these ventures took me to Central Asia, uh, Afghanistan after the Taliban fell, and also Sri Lanka after the 2006 tsunami. During these medical trips, I experienced firsthand some of the hardships that refugees face. Well, let's look at some definitions. Uh, what is a refugee and how many are there? Well, according to the U.S. Committee for Refugees, there are 12 million refugees. And they define it as a person who flees from his home in search of refuge or safety. And this can be especially to a foreign country in times of political upheaval, war, religious persecution. It means one fleeing home. There are also 34 million IDPs, which is an internally displaced person. Those that are displaced by war, uh, tribal strife, natural disasters, but within, they remain within the same national borders. But they're homeless just the same. They're in their own country, but they're still homeless. Um, an OVC is an orphan and vulnerable children, orphan and vulnerable child. Um, obviously, orphans, we're familiar with that term in terms of a, a child who has lost both their parents and does not have any parental support. But we realize, too, that children who have lost one parent, uh, perhaps their father has died, they're still living with their mother, or vice versa, the mother has died and only the father remains. Even though they're not technically orphans, they still face a lot of the same issues that orphans face. They are vulnerable, um, particularly in societies that may be paternalistic, and you've got a woman who has lost her husband. She very often is left without any resources. She may not have ownership of the family farm or the crops or the um, herds, and she may not have a way for income generation. So those children may be just as disadvantaged as orphans and not have the access to basic needs of food, shelter, medical care, and education. Okay, 80% of all refugees are women and children. And in fact, half of all refugees are children. So definitely, the bulk of refugees are orphans or vulnerable children. These statistics are astounding. And yet, behind every statistic is a person. 
What I'd like to do is look at several of these people. I've got several case studies, um, and what I'd like to do is kind of plod through some of these cases, and I'd, I'd like for it to be an interactive session. I have times where we can kind of discuss things. This is a very large group, so it may be a challenge, but um, I want you to get to be thinking about how you would approach these cases. Because uh, if you're going to go overseas, I can guarantee you're going to see some of these illnesses, okay? So in terms of laboratory diagnosis, treatment, and the lessons you can learn, uh, let's see how we can approach these. Okay. Case one. After the Taliban fell in Central Asia, millions of people flocked back into the capital city um, of their homeland. They came, they came uh, across the border from neighboring countries, but they also came from mountains where they had been hiding within their own country. Their previous farms and vineyards were decimated, and for many, there was nothing to return home to. So they flocked to the city. But unfortunately, housing was scarce, and many refugees ended up sort of squatters, making tent cities uh, in shelters and bombed-out buildings. Sarai is a four-month-old baby brought to the mobile clinic with watery diarrhea, fever, mucoid stools, and weight loss. On physical exam, the child is listless with a sunken fontanelle, dry mucous membranes, and poor capillary refill. Okay, let's be thinking, what is the lab that you would like to get? What's the diagnosis? What's the treatment? And what can we learn? Okay, very briefly, how would you approach this? What labs would you get? A metabolic panel. That's fantastic. What are you looking for? Okay, electrolytes. We'd love to know what the sodium is, potassium, the anion gap, the, the um, uh, bicarb level would be very helpful. I don't have an electrolyte metabolite machine. Sorry. <laughs> Can't do it. What else? What other lab would you like to get? Stool cultures. That would be very, very helpful. We can't do those either. Anything else? Stool smear. Probably more of an option. A lot of our clinics do have some um, basic microscopy. What are you looking for? can't remember. Ovum parasites. Yeah, exactly. Red blood cells. Um, Hemocult cards I can carry with me everywhere I go with a little developer. And um, getting a guaiac on a stool, if it's, you know, if it seemed positive, okay, there's colitis, and that's a lot more serious. Generally means you need antibiotics. little tip there. If it's not heme positive, then it's probably just a, a watery diarrhea source that's most likely going to be self-limited. But I'm getting more into the lessons. Okay. Um, Diagnoses, what are you thinking about? You were thinking about Dehyd yeah. dehydration is a key factor here. Is this child dehydrated? Yes. yes, absolutely. Hemodynamically unstable? For those of you who are pediatricians in the room, do I need to know the blood pressure? Yes. It would be nice, but I don't have a blood pressure cuff that will fit this child. Hmm. So how am I going to tell if she's in serious trouble? Heart rate, yes. The circulatory uh, system, the capillary refill is actually a lot more sensitive than the blood pressure if you don't have the adequate cuff. Yeah. This child has a prolonged capillary refill. She's listless. So she's got end-organ problems. She's been affected neurologically in her central nervous system because she's listless. She's probably got poor urine output, poor capillary refill. She's hemodynamically unstable. 
Is she at risk of dying? Yeah, over 50%. High morbidity and mortality from this disease. And in fact, why do children die from diarrheal illnesses? Dehydration. Yeah, they die from dehydration. So what's the treatment? Thank you. Rehydration. Yes. Now, yeah, I got into this a little bit. If there was a bloody diarrhea, the mucoid diarrhea... Um, generally tells me it's probably amoeba or giardia. I'd treat with flagell if I had it. If I wasn't real sure, I'd give her Bactroman flagell, cover the bases. But even more critical than that is the oral rehydration. Oral is just as effective as IV, sometimes better, because you don't run a lot of risks with it. And the, the key is to get fluids in this child quickly. Um, now, a lot of our places will have uh, oral rehydration packets from the WHO. They're wonderful. You take a liter of water, clean water, and add that in. Poof, you've got oral rehydration fluid. What if you don't have that? And a lot of these IDP camps, they don't necessarily have, you know, maybe they have yearly deposits of the World Health Organization materials, but. Salt and sugar, yes. And I instruct moms that they can make their own oral rehydration solution. It's not quite as good as the packets that are, you know, pre-made, but it works. Um, basically, you want to instruct them that they get a bucket or a, a pan of water and boil it for 20 minutes. And then cover it so the flies and the insects don't get in it. Set it aside, let it cool. Get a clean liter bottle. Fill it with, you know, hopefully it's clean. Um, fill it with the pure water. And then add a... Cup, a handful, cupped handful of sugar and a three-finger pinch of salt. And then what's the next instruction? Taste it, yes. Shake it up, taste it. If it's salty, then they got confused and they put a handful of salt and a pinch of sugar. It's supposed to be a liter of water, handful of sugar, a pinch of salt, and they taste it to make sure. And then just... As much as they can get in the child, if the child keeps vomiting, you wait 10 minutes and then you just keep spooning it by cup, however they can get it in. It's life-saving. Okay. And uh, the problem, uh, the lesson here is that diarrheal disease is the number one killer of children under five worldwide, whether they're refugees or not, and it's from contaminated food and water sources. Okay, case two. After the disputed elections of December 2007, tribal violence wrecked through Kenya, causing hundreds of thousands of people to flee their homes. Even weeks later, two months later, even though the violence had gone down, people were still afraid to go back home, and there were 150,000 people remaining homeless and displaced from their family plots and villages housed in makeshift tent cities. Kajuko here is a two-year-old with fever and cough. Yes, sir. In case one, do you have a problem using uh, Cipro and little kids? Do I have a problem with using Cipro and little kids? Uh, hmm. <laughs> There's not an easy answer to that. You're not supposed to, for those of you who are not pediatricians, you're not supposed to use Cipro in small children. Back against the wall, I have used it. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> You know, there are a lot of lessons I've learned on the mission field. Um, You take what resources you have, and uh, we do the best we can with what we have. 
and realize that usually if we're not there and our services are not there, there's nothing. And so even though we can't give the medicine that we're used to in the Western world, we can bring them a long way along that spectrum. And, uh, yeah, we use what we have and do the best, and when we pray and ask God for, to fill in the gaps. And uh, I've even, one of my favorite prayers when I was living in Kenya was, okay, God, you know what the problem is here, and will you take this medicine, please just change the chemical bonds into the right medicine, because I'm really not sure what I'm doing here. And... Um, a lot of people got well, and I'll give God credit for that. Okay, so Kajuko has, uh, he's two years old, and he has fever and a cough. His mother and siblings also have coughs. The father's not present, and she has no money for medicines. And this young kid has been sick for two weeks. Okay, what test do you want to get? What labs would you like? What's the diagnosis? What's the treatment? What lessons can we learn? She said she wants to diagnose before the test. Well, let's just, for fun, what test would you like to get? Excellent. Okay, so she said she'd love to get a CBC. I would, too. I'd love to know what the white count is. Some places I can get that. Some I can't. It's, it's nice to have, but it's not crucial. Chest X-ray would be very nice to know if this child has, what are you looking for? Pneumonia, yeah, and sputum smear. And a two-year-old, I really have a hard time getting sputum from a two-year-old. Um, Gastric aspirates can be good sometimes, but we, we don't have to go through that. Um, and a lot of times we don't have the resources for that. Um, and even better than a chest X-ray. There's an instrument that's even more sensitive than a chest X-ray. And what would that be? A stethoscope? Close. Your watch. Your watch. What am I, what am I checking with the watch? Respiratory rate. In children under five, the respiratory rate is the most sensitive indicator of lower respiratory tract disease or pneumonia. If you have a child who's a year of age or younger and their respiratory rate is over 50, or a child that is one to five with a respiratory rate over 40, and this is really easy to check either with a stethoscope or a watch, and there's in, in the absence of high fever, pain, crying, agitation, which can also make the respiratory rate fast. If you've got a child who's relatively calm, and particularly you've given a dose of Tylenol, fevers come down, and they're still breathing 60 times a minute, you've got pneumonia until proven otherwise, and you need to treat it. Okay, so diagnosis here. Pneumonia. From what cause? A lot of different options. Um, Probably bacterial. He's only been sick a couple of weeks. Tuberculosis. I uh, heard that out there. That's a possibility. I wouldn't diagnose that clinically until I'd given the um, patient two weeks of good antibiotics and they're still coughing and they're not any better at all, unless there's some other signs or symptoms. Um, what antibiotic would you use? Amoxicillin. Good choice. Azithromycin. That's first-line drug here in the U.S. I don't have that in Kenya. I didn't have that in Afghanistan. The World Health Organization actually uh, has Bactrim, Totramoxazole, as the drug of choice, which we never use here in the U.S. for pneumonia generally. Um, but it's a great drug, and it has a good 
broad spectrum of action. Amoxicillin is really good, too, and it's cheap. And I very often will use that first line. Uh, it kind of depends on what I've got available. And, and this is the take-home message. Use what's available and go for the cheap things um, because a lot of these people don't have the, the money to pay for the erythromycin or the Zithromax or, um, you know, the cephalosporins may be out there, um, but a lot of times we don't have those. We don't have rocephin. So um, there's not the resistance to amoxicillin that there, here, there is here in the States. So it's, it's a good drug. Okay. This case, uh, this is Solal. And she has fallen in a fire as her house was burned by an angry tribal mob. She has burns over a considerable part of her body, and uh, the swelling there has gotten some infection. She's ran in fever. She's quite ill from burns, and basically because angry mobs came through and burned her house. Jacob lost his arm from a flying bullet. Other children have lost legs, uh, limbs when they stepped on a landmine. These are all examples of physical wounds uh, injuries that often uh, are a result of being a refugee and being homeless, particularly women and children as they're trying to flee. Uh, a lot of times they're trailing. Uh, women are trying to carry younger children, and uh, safety, just physical safety, is often a big problem for them. So kind of looking at all of these cases, these are all acute problems. The diarrheal diseases, the re respiratory tract infections, um, the illnesses and um, injuries. Refugee camps, tent cities, makeshift housing, diseases are basically rampant in these places because these makeshift homes have poor sanitation, unclean water supplies, waste disposal pit latrines at best, and sometimes open sewage uh, as at worst. Very often there's not enough water to drink, much less wash clothes or dishes or bodies. And uh, the water that's available, I don't know if you can imagine this, but sometimes there's giardia here, hmm? amoeba, typhoid, cholera. This is a, weak, uh, a drinking source. And the pigs and the animals nearby are drinking from it too. Deplorable conditions. The conditions are very crowded. Communicable diseases are common. And in this population, diarrheal diseases and respiratory illnesses are the top killers of children under five worldwide. People either come to a refugee camp sick or they get sick when they're there. Refugees have massive needs that need to be met quickly. And very often they don't have resources of their own and they're completely dependent on outside help. It's an emergency situation that requires relief care. The solution is relief, which is immediate provision of water, food, shelter, and medicines. And there are many, many good agencies that are skilled in providing that care on a quick notice. Samaritan's Purse, UNHCR, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, the Red Cross, they're all great agencies and they do a good job. But their work is short-lived. They know how to come in quick and provide help. But if the people don't go home right away, those agencies, they finish quickly and they also leave. And so then more chronic problems can develop. Let's talk about some of those. This is Abdul, and he is an adorable four-year-old. He just bounced into the clinic tent, happy guy, 
But he really began to shy away as I took off his headscarf. When I first saw him, he had this scarf kind of wrapped around, and I couldn't really see his face. And as I took that off, he started to shy away. He had multiple red lesions across his face and neck, and they're tender, and they ooze a yellowish fluid. And this is in Central Asia. Any ideas on diagnosis, treatment? What's that? Impetigo, that's a very good guess. And I really think this is probably secondarily infected with staph or strep. So impetigo is not necessarily wrong here. Mosquito bites with scratching, that's a good idea. In terms of insects, arthropods, different uh, insects that are causing bites, and then they get secondarily infected. It's a good, good, good thought. This is a tough one, and this is primarily, you kind of have to know the region, and wherever you go, it's very good to either kind of read up ahead before you go to find out what are the common things that are there, or once you get there, keep your eyes and ears open and be a learner, because whatever the health professionals and the people that are working in that area, even though their education may be totally dwarfed by your education, they know more about their people group, and they know more about the illnesses that are in their particular area. This is cutaneous leishmaniasis. (laughs) Okay, yeah, it's cutaneous leishmaniasis, which is an illness transmitted by the sand fly, and the treatment is site injections of sodium stiboglutinate. I don't expect you to know that. That's going to be somewhere on somebody's board exam. Um, but there again, it's, it's a common, very, very common problem in a specific locale because of conditions, okay? Istalif was a vacation spot for the Afghan elite years ago until the Taliban came through, and uh, they basically uh, tore up everything. They, they just uh, oppressed the area and occupied it. Um, they used this ho- hotel to house their arsenals. Um, the hotel didn't survive. Um, during the Taliban's scorched earth policy, every fruit-bearing tree was burned and the roof of every house. The clinic, the school, the businesses were all bombed. And uh, their thought was, if we can't have it, you can't either. And what remained was dusty rubble. Just the whole town looked like this. It was the perfect habitat for the sandfly, which is the vector which transmit leishmaniasis. Refugees who would be sleeping in this rubble, trying to make a home in the shelters amidst the rubble, would be bitten at night and would contract leishmaniasis. The resulting sores are painful, uh, but even worse, they leave horrific scars. Um, They eventually will clear up over years' time, um, but leave just these horrible scars. And particularly for women, it's it's a social disgrace. Um, this, is a, this is a culture where women basically have to get married to have any kind of identity or social security. If they don't have a husband and children to care for them in their old age, they're, they're in, there's nothing else for them. Um, and for a, a girl to have scars uh, is demeaning. It, it lowers her rank and makes, makes her chances of marriage for a profitable one much less. So it's, it's a disaster for these girls. I frequently see skin diseases among refugees and OVCs. Um, Bites, scratches, small incidences to us get secondarily infected. 
scabies, very, very frequent. Little pustules in the webs of the fingers, but can be body-wide. Any idea what this is? Ringworm? Yeah. I've seen some people with 100 different ringworm patches. Uh, sometimes it can be overwhelming, like, what on earth is this? Is this? And uh, ringworm is really pretty easy. For some of these rashes, what I do is a telescope thing, where I look at just a small section of the rash, and then it's easier to identify it that way. Um, a lot of medical problems with the skin. This is, any idea? Tinea capitis that's gotten secondarily infected. Mm-hmm. So among refugees and OVCs, uh, definitely lots of skin problems. Um, leishmaniasis, scabies, ringworm, infected cuts, scratch, bites. And most of these are caused from poor hygiene. Again, lack of washing, lack of clean water, Lack of water for bathing. Okay, case five. A Maasai mother brought her son to me complaining that he wasn't growing or playing with the other children. Again, tribal disputes. She got displaced. Her husband belonged to a different tribe. They were separated, and she was on her own. Um, the physical, physical exam revealed the child less than 3% for height and weight, pale conjunctiva, oral thrush, and perlesh, the cracking at the corners of the mouth. He was noticeably listless, weak, and refused to stand on his legs where he had been walking several months prior. Your thoughts on lab, diagnosis, treatment? We'd love to get a CBC. That's right. And we actually could get a hemoglobin value on him, and it was five. He's severely anemic. Yeah. Why is he anemic? Oh, yeah, he has kind of a protuberant belly. Thoughts on why he's anemic? Parasites, yeah. Probably iron deficient. Um, And just for sake of time, I'll kind of run through this. This child had several diagnoses, and which often happens with OVCs and refugees. It's not just one problem. He's anemic, yes. He's got iron deficiency, true. He has an intestinal parasites that are taking up the iron that he does ingest. And vitamin deficiencies. That's probably why he's not walking. So severe malnutrition. And the treatment for him, well, definitely we should use our medicines, um, the mebendazole for the intestinal worms, iron, vitamins. But really, the drug of choice, food. Uh, he, needs, he needs food. Now, that may sound simplistic, but um, he needs food. And this is a huge problem because a lot of times these folks don't have the resources to get the simplest treatment, which is food. Um, I have a few pictures here in terms of um, looking at malnutrition. This is kwashiorkor, the wasting illness. We also see marasmus, the protein energy malnutrition, PEN, uh, where you see the swelling, the bloated belly, the change in hair color. Uh, These have a very, very high morbidity and mortality rate, 50%. And even when we can get them food, sometimes that doesn't help because these kids have uh, developed malnutrition, I'm sorry, uh, malabsorption Syndromes. The intestinal villi are just totally flat, and they can't absorb the nutrition that they ingest. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. We attempt refeeding, but very often uh, we're not successful, either because they're too sick, they can't absorb the nutrition, or um, the nutrition is not available. Like I said, these people are disadvantaged. They often don't have the social structure. They may not have jobs, may not have income, and uh, can't get food. All right, and our hands sometimes are tied. Um, in this case, I'll run through this quickly. I'm sorry, you can't see the, the picture very well. This child has a red rash and a fever. 
this is measles. And uh, pointing out here that a lot of the illnesses that refugees and OVCs get are preventable, uh, but they often don't have access to regular health care. These three cases um, pro highlight problems of refugees after the acute period. The lack of employment and income leads to an inability to provide basics of food and medicines. Refugee camps or temporary housing facilities often don't have schools, clinics, or regular medical care. Simple illnesses and preventable diseases cause significant mortality. The solution? Well, as you can see, maybe more handouts, maybe not. I've been to a refugee camp where we were handing out blankets for the winter, and their comment was, thank you for the blanket. Um, your blanket's nice, but next time bring me a job. I want to work. At this point, the people know that they need more than handouts. They want to rebuild their lives. They want to get back to work, work, but often they need help in rebuilding, rebuilding permanent houses or digging wells for uh, safe water supplies, perhaps reestablishing schools, particularly schools for women, because uh, very often the girls don't get to go to school or they go after the boys have had their chance. Rebuilding of clinics, rebuilding of sanitation plans. They need... Um, communities and resources to rebuild their livelihoods and have income generation. At this stage, development is needed more than relief. In some cases, security can be a real problem. And I've seen cases, uh, places where uh, the political tensions are still so high uh, that it's really hard to move forward. Sometimes outside peacekeeping forces are needed, but very often the community needs unity. And that's easier said than done because a lot of refugees, IDPs, OVCs, these people are kind of plopped together. They've, they've come together in refugee camps or in government-instituted um, locations for homes um, when they're a mixed community. They're, they're coming from different tribes, from different areas of the country. Um, they're living with people that they normally don't live with and sometimes consider their enemies. And so there can be definite tensions um, and so that's, that's a struggle and a challenge. The community during this stage needs structure to police itself. Uh, authority, lines of authority and elder system needs to be regained. And I've seen sometimes where this gets just totally stu uh, stuck if the individuals don't see themselves as a community, if they see themselves as uh, separate tribal or ethnic groups. It's very difficult then for them to work together for the common good. Whereas relief was needed in the acute crisis, development is needed for the long haul. And one of the best tools that I've seen for development is a program called CHE, C-H-E, Community Health Evangelism. In some of these countries where the pictures come from, we call it community health education because we can't go in as evangelists. Uh, but we can go in providing health care and other needs to meet physical needs and then earn the right to speak on other matters. And through CHE, communities are trained and equipped to address their problems with local resources. All right, this next case, and I apologize, I'm kind of rushing through this because there's a lot of material and I want to have some time for questions at the end. Um, this is a really sad case. This woman came to the clinic. Um, I saw her. Uh, we treated her and her child. We wrote out prescriptions. She seemed to be doing okay. And then later we kind of wondered what happened to her. She never made it to the pharmacy line. And we found her hiding behind the trash heap. She was too afraid to come to the pharmacy table because it was staffed by men. 
Even the burqa was not enough to hide her trembling. She was scared to death. She had come to the clinic complaining of stomach pain. On questioning, she was not sleeping well. She was having many terrifying dreams. She had frequent emesis, and on physical exam, she had epigastric tenderness. When we asked if there were stresses at home, she started to cry. Her husband was dead. He'd been killed in the war. Her children were sick, and she wasn't sure how she was going to keep them warm through the winter. This is a serious winter with lots of snow, and she's in a tent. Her comment was, we will all freeze to death in our sleep. And that wasn't an impossibility, actually. What's the diagnosis and the treatment for her? What are your thoughts on her case? Post-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. She's got several diagnoses, and they all kind of wrap up together, really. But insomnia, depression, post-traumatic stress. And how would we treat that? Well, you're the health professional. What do you want to give her? We had the pharmaceutical group just in here in the last session, and you have your bag of tricks, your medicines. What would you want to give her? The Bible. The Bible? Yeah. Yeah, lots of prayer. Well, definitely, um, our, our scientific and chemical uh, background and knowledge can help us out, and uh, some sleep agents can help her out in antidepressants. But, yeah, the point I want to make, too, is it needs to go beyond that. She's got some huge social, economic, spiritual, and emotional needs. And so really what she needs is grief counseling and support, social support, mental support, um, and spiritual care. For sure. In this next case, I'd like to show you some drawings. Uh, While I was in Central Asia on a mission trip, uh, my daughter, who is an artist, came with me. Uh, She was studying art and thinking about art therapy. And so while I was uh, seeing patients, she had brought a whole stack of paper and crayons, and she was in the next room, and she was going to work with the children doing art therapy. Um, Unfortunately, her translator didn't come. And so she just sat down and started drawing. Well, body language is a great international communicator, and the kids just flocked to her. And they started drawing pictures. And they knew how to color, and they knew how to draw, and they drew. The first drawings were flowers, lots of flowers. And then they draw teapots. And they draw more flowers, and they draw more teapots. But just over and over again, each child, as they kind of go through about their third or fourth picture of a teapot or a flower, they started drawing pictures with some slightly different character and images, like tanks or gravestones with dead flowers or buildings engulfed in red or people missing arms and limbs covered in red. There was one little boy who drew a house and then took a red crayon and just ferociously covered the whole thing in red. It didn't take a licensed art therapist, really, to identify that these children were drawing images from horrific things that they had witnessed and seen themselves. Trauma, loss, and grief coming forth in their drawings. 9 to 11% of refugee children suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. 
And in looking up some of the statistics and information for this talk, I found a wide range, anywhere from 9 to 34% of refugees. Uh, so it, it's a wide range who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. But definitely, there's no doubt. Uh, every source agreed. It's a huge problem. Um, and it's, it's a problem not just in the refugees that may be international, but even those who then transplant and come to Western countries to relocate and settle new lives still suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, apart from the physical wounds, the starvation, malnutrition, the medical illnesses, a lot of uh, refugees and, and um, OVCs will develop mental illnesses, depression, and PTSD. And these long-term mental problems can really hinder and be a significant challenge to just daily functioning. And when you've got people who are displaced and they're trying to navigate a new environment, maybe a new homeland, a new location, different jobs, trying to change um, livelihoods for some, uh, it's very, very challenging. Among, let me see, among uh, the symptoms Post-traumatic stress disorder includes anxiety, hyper-alertness, sleeplessness, chronic fatigue syndrome, motor difficulties, failing short-term memory, amnesia, nightmares, sleep paralysis. Flashbacks, very common characteristic of this disorder where the patient experiences the traumatic event or pieces of it again and again and again. Depression often uh, coincides with PTSD as also other psychiatric comorbidities. They're at high risk for suicide or self-mutilation, self-harm. Uh, worldwide, tens of thousands of refugees and former refugees resettled in Western countries will have post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, the, the suicide risk is, is very high. And what people will do in order to what they think manage, um, it's not uncommon in Central Asia where women suffering from this will um, actually, commonly, they'll douse themselves in, in a petrol, a gasoline, and light a match. Um, obviously, does not solve the problem. It makes things worse. Uh, they often die, uh, but sometimes don't, and then are disfigured and have, you know, illnesses. And so it, it's just, it's a cyclic, huge problem. Okay, this is my last case, uh, perhaps the most sad. This is Amina, um, and most sad because she lost everything because she was thrown away. Amina was a teacher until tribal violence drove her from her home five years ago. So we're seeing her several years later. While she was in the IDP camp five years ago, she was raped by a gang of thugs because she was the wrong tribe at the wrong place and the wrong time. When she came to us, she visited the clinic. She had a severe cough that persisted despite several rounds of antibiotics. She had already gone to several other clinics. She also had epigastric pain that kept her from eating. The physical exam revealed a very thin woman with discolored hair. On chest exam, she had coarse ronchi, bilateral upper lobes, white plaques on the tongue, and oral mucosa. Her 16-month-old child was also failing to thrive. He was not growing well. He didn't play with the other children, and he had a persistent cough. Okay, what labs would you like to get? You get one choice. Yeah, HIV test, definitely. What is it about her story and her exam that nails it for you? What's that? Multisystem involvement. Mm -hmm. 
Candida, yeah. For me, it's the candida, the oral thrush. Uh, that really kind of raised my flag. Yeah, her story is definitely she's at risk um, for not only HIV but multiple other sexually transmitted diseases. Um, the pneumonia on physical exam that has not responded to antibiotics. What are your thoughts? TB, yeah, pulmonary tuberculosis. Um, her HIV test is positive. I'm able to get that. Sorry. And uh, with a positive uh, HIV test, uh, she has several diagnoses here, too, as well. Uh, very classic. It's not just one problem, but many. Uh, she has AIDS with the oral candidiasis and the pulmonary TB as her AIDS-defining illnesses. What do you think about the epigastric pain? It's probably uh, candida esophagitis. She's got it in her mouth. It probably tracks down. Okay. And just an, that's just a, a small, uh, keep that in your back pocket. Whenever I see a patient who's complaining of epigastric pain, I examine their mouth. You know, I examine their belly, yes, and listen to that, but I also take a look at their mouth. If they've got, they've got oral candida, that tells me a whole lot. I need to get an HIV test, and it's probably candida esophagitis. Okay, that's a, that's a commercial. We'll put that aside. Back to the story. Um, Amina was counseled to start TB medicines right away and then eventually come back and get her antiretroviral medications. However, unfortunately, she preferred to return home since she was no longer able to work. Once her husband found out that she was HIV positive, he threw her out. Um, and her three older children stayed with him and his mother because in that culture the children belonged to the husband. And she never saw, Amina never saw them again. Only the 16-year-old nursing child was able to go with her. She went back to her parents' home in disgrace, only to suffer heavy ostracism from the people there. She couldn't work. She was too weak. She had no property, and she couldn't afford medications. So she did what she had to do. She moved into the home of a man to do his housework and whatever else he asked for. Um, in the course of six months, she lived in the home of four different men in order to survive. Amina is not a commercial sex worker or a prostitute by trade, but she was definitely using sex to survive, to obtain necessary food and shelter. Amina finally made her way back to our community and our clinic, but not before she had lost her job, her husband, her children, her tribe, her identity, and her reputation. She and the boy were started on ARVs and other medications. Unfortunately for him, it was too late. He died a week later. 80% of refugees are women and children. These women often carry the heaviest burden of survival for themselves and their families. Women and adolescent girls in refugee settings are especially vulnerable to exploitation, to rape, abuse, and other forms of gender-based violence, which also puts them at risk for AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases. It's a vicious cycle. Children and youth constitute 50% of all refugees worldwide, and they can be the deliberate targets of abuse, easy prey for military recruitment, human trafficking, so child soldiering, and abduction. Refugee children, OVCs, typically miss out on years of education, particularly the younger ones. There are currently 43 million children living in conflict-affected areas who don't have the chance to go to school. Girls, in particular, face obstacles to education, 
Families who lack the funds for school fees, uniforms, books are often influenced by their cultural norms to prioritize and send the boys to school over the girls. The girls are typically pulled out of school before the boys in order to care for younger children, gather firewood, and cook. Early or forced marriages can also derail a girl's education. Without an education, refugee women and youth often struggle to support themselves and their families. Refugees are displaced for even longer periods of time than ever before. Statistics are that 68% of all refugees are now displaced for an average of 17 years. So the ability for refugees, particularly women and youth, to earn a living and sustain themselves and their families is becoming even more critical. Livelihoods really are vital for the social and economic and emotional well-being of displaced persons. And they're key to increase their safety of displaced women and adolescents. The lack of education, minimal job prospects, responsibilities at home, these all limit the livelihood opportunities of women and youth. And the lack of family cohesion, security, bitterness, anger, rage, these are all going to aggravate their physical needs. So I hope you can understand, really, at this point, that refugees have immense medical, but also economic, social, and spiritual challenges and needs. And therefore, whatever program we have to help them has to be holistic, addressing the physical, emotional, social, and spiritual issues as well. What does the Bible say about refugees? There's a lot. I had a lot of scripture. I just picked one. Jeremiah 22, 3. This is what the Lord says. Do what is right and just. Rescue from the hand of his oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the refugee, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. God definitely cares. It's just so evident in scripture. He cares for the homeless. And really the church is one of the key answers for what to do for refugees and OBCs. At this point, um, I want to be sensitive to our time. Um, Let me just briefly run through the last few slides to highlight. It's not all bad. Um, This is Barak in Central Asia. 600 IDP families who had been just squatters um, in Kabul were relocated to this desert. There's not even a blade of grass. Um, But five years later, there are homes being built, um, secure water sources, jobs, schools, transportation. And it's all through uh, an organization, SOZO. Uh, Quick plug there. You can find their booth. And uh, working through CHE. In Nairobi as well, I've worked. uh, This is Istalaf, the bombed-out rebel. has now become businesses where people are caring for themselves and their families. And uh, in Nairobi, um, CMF, Hope Partnership, and CHE has worked together for child sponsorship keeping children in school and through that, and um, even microenterprise with the parents to get these people pulled out of poverty. That is my contact information. I would love to hear from you. Um, I'll open it up for questions. I'll be here for a couple more minutes, but I want to be sensitive that you have other places to go. So thank you very much.